Talking to be here in this spot, but it's good to be here in this spot. Um, I've been, I'm Blake Rogers, by the way. For the, any, of, any of you visiting, I'm not the guy who's typically uh, here. Uh, I'm the youth pastor here. and I'm in my fifth year uh, of youth ministry here, and uh, we have absolutely loved our time at Fisherville. And again, I'm grateful to be able to stand before you this morning. Our pastor is away teaching a conference. He's got a far more daunting task than I do because you guys love me and I love you, and he's speaking to complete strangers. And so um, I'm just thankful, thankful to have this opportunity. Uh, today we're going to be in the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John. And so if you don't mind, go ahead and start flipping your Bibles over that way. We're going to be looking at verses 31 through 47. My youth are probably laughing right now because we never make it as far as we say we're going to make it in youth group. But we're going to make it this time, guys. All right. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this opportunity. Uh, God, we thank you that we can open your word together freely. God, we pray that uh, as we uh, study together, as we endeavor to know you together this morning through John chapter 8, that you would help us um, to know you, that we would, would, that we would know your gospel with great clarity, that it would be proclaimed with great clarity. God, I pray that you use me, uh, that I would be your servant, that this text would not serve me in any way, but that I would be your servant as I explain it. To you be the glory. Amen. All right, so I'm a youth pastor here. I also work full-time over at Boyce College and Southern Seminary, and part of my responsibilities over there is coaching a basketball team, which is, which is a ton of fun. Absolutely love coaching. Love to read about coaching. Love coaches, love leadership philosophy, love all these different types of things. Love the game of basketball. It's great. One of the coaches, I don't know if I want to mention this based on what he did yesterday, but one of the coaches that I kind of look up to for coaching philosophy is a guy named Nick Saban in Alabama. It's really because our pastor makes me, right? Because he's an Alabama guy. But, but no, seriously, I, I'm really interested in Nick Saban and why. It's because he has a pattern of sustained Sustained success over years and years and years and years and years. Maybe, yeah, we're not going to talk about his spiritual state or anything like that or his actions yesterday. But, he's, but it, I think he's really got it. He's got the process uh, down. Well, this past summer, he read a book and recommended a book, actually, that I picked up to read. And it's called Grit. Um, and I know some of you may have seen this. It was a New York Times bestseller. It was written by a lady named Angela Duckworth. And... Angela Duckworth, she holds uh, numerous degrees. She graduated from Harvard, from Oxford, and then she graduated, she got a PhD from uh, Penn University, so great prestigious schools um, in psychology, in psychology. And so what her goal is as a psychologist and her particular, her niche in psychology is studying highly successful people, right? kind of sounds like she wants to sell books, right? Um, but you, you know these books, these, these books that study highly successful people. Well, she's figured out anecdotally, but also backed by data, that highly successful people, people who are able to carry sustained success year after year after year, have these qualities about them. And this quality is called grit. Okay, grit. Not the food that I love to eat, but do y'all know what grits are? Okay, I, I didn't know, and nobody, nobody said anything, so I was like, wait a minute. 
Okay, all right. But, this, but it's grit. And she defines grit as somebody's natural ability to exude passion where they are in whatever they're doing. And then also be willing to persevere no matter what the circumstances. So if you have a great deal of passion about yourself. And some people are just naturally passionate. If you have a great deal of perseverance about yourself, then no matter what you put your hand to, according to Angela Duckworth, the data shows that you will be successful. Well, she studies this in a broad range of environments. She does it in athletics. She does it in business. She does it in the spelling bee. Compet- you know, competitors. Can we? Is that, is that correct? Competitors? Can you, spelling bee competitors, spellers. Um, she does it in athletics. She does it in all these different things. But she also did it for West Point Academy, the Academy of the United States Army. And the reason she went to West Point is because uh, West Point, first of all, has one of the most demanding application processes that you could imagine um, to get into the school. Um, it, it evaluates personal, you know, your academic ability, personal traits, physical traits, very, very demanding physical traits. You've got to have a state representative or some state elected state official sign off and recommend that you go. It is, it is a two plus year process in order to be considered to get into West Point, great prestigious school. Well, here's what happens. These people imagine themselves as soldiers in the army, as graduates and enrollees of West Point. And so they apply. They go through all this work, all this work, all this work to get there. And then whenever they get there, they meet what's called beast. And beast is the physical and emotional testing ground that the United States Army puts all of these new enrollees through whenever they first get to the academy. It entails things like waking up. Excuse me, not waking up at five o'clock, but being ready, dressed in uniform, properly ironed, properly placed um, at 5 a.m. And it goes through, I mean, 30 minute time slots of just crazy, crazy, difficult circumstances, a lot of demands, probably not a lot of food, just crazy, crazy demands. Well, what happens is that all these people who really thought that they were going to be great soldiers one day in the army, they meet Beast Week and they say, Ah, we're out of here. We're done with this. We can't handle this pressure. We don't have the capacity, the grit, to bring it back to the illustration. We don't have the grit to make it through. Well, Angela Duckworth is partnering with the United States Army to try to figure out, before these people get here, how can we narrow down the cycle in order to find these people who actually have this characteristic, this quality about them, this grittiness that would help them succeed and persevere in their pursuits at West Point. Well, today we are going to encounter Jesus putting some particular people through their own spiritual beast week. Um, He's going to be talking to some Jews. And these Jews are kind of like the people who showed up to West Point, and kind of wanted to be a part of the crowd. They had warm feelings and dreams about what that life might look like. But they didn't actually have the thing deep within them that would actually qualify them as disciples. And not only qualifying them as disciples, but they didn't have and, and have a lifestyle 
that demonstrated that they were true disciples. And that's our, the title of our sermon this morning is Truly My Disciples. I don't know what all is on the screen. Never mind. There it is right up there. Um, truly My Disciples. The difficulty with uh, just dropping in, that's kind of what I've done this morning. I've just, Pastor Brian asked me to do this and he just dropped me in here. Is that we're going to jump into this text without having a long um, substantive knowledge of what's been going on in the book of John thus far. So one of the things I really appreciate about Pastor Brian and his ministry here is that he does take us through books. And as you go through books from week to week, the context for this passage is what was taught last week. And it's just, it builds and builds and builds and builds and builds. And so it's a, and it's a good, it's expository preaching at its finest. It's great. I don't have that privilege. And so in order to catch us up, we're going to go through just a little bit of immediate context. Actually, we've got some youth over here who know the context because this is what we're going through in youth. So Ben, you want to come up here and tell us the con? No, I'm teasing. I wouldn't do that to you. I wouldn't do that to you. Broader context. Where does this passage fall in the scriptures? Obviously, we see that this is in the book of John. John chapter 20, and, and the, the gospel of John is unique in this. It has a purpose statement at the end. And it tells you exactly what every word in the book of John was actually meant to do. And this purpose statement is this. It's in John 20 and verse 30 through 31, which you can turn there if you want, but I'm going to read it now. It says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Again, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So we know just by the, the sheer fact that these words are in this book with this explicit purpose statement that our goal this morning as we study these things is that so we as a congregation can know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. That's the broader context of our passage. The more immediate context and what's been going on as we've kind of ventured to chapter 8 in the book of John, it's a few different things. We obviously have the great introduction of Jesus as the very word of God, the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And then he goes throughout all the broader regions of Judea performing miracles. He does things like he turns water into wine in chapter 2, the wedding of Cana. People are pretty excited about that. Pretty, pretty interesting that a man uh, in the flesh could do that. He heals people. Um, we go to uh, John chapter 4. He, he heals uh, the official son in John chapter 4. In John chapter 5, we have a healing of the, at the pool of Bethesda. And so he's doing really, really cool things, even though the Jews were a little bit angry about that one since it was on the Sabbath, even though he healed a man. Um, but there, he's doing cool things. And then there's the feeding of the 5,000, which actually everybody gets excited about because that's what happens when you give people food. Jesus is building momentum by his actions, right? He's, doing, he's performing miracles, miracles after miracles uh, that leads us to this point. He's not just performing miracles, though. He's doing so with a message. And his message is one uh, that is narrow. Jesus is starting to say things like, the Father and I are one. And to say that to a Jew in a Jewish context, 
is a, is a heresy. It's a, it's a blasphemous statement. It's something that you just can't say. You get punished and killed for saying things like that. Yet Jesus came to share that message with us. And he came to share that message with him. He and the Father are one. He talks all about that as he's performing these miracles. Well, as all of this is happening, Jesus starts drawing a crowd, right? You do fun, you have a good trick and pony show. A crowd comes to watch it and it's a good thing, right? And so we would imagine that at this point, Jesus drawing the crowd is going to just continue to say, come on crowd, come on. Look at all these, look at all these miracles that I can do. I am I do have full authority over the universe. I do have full authority over food supply. I do have full authority over human sickness. I do have full authority over human death. Come, come see, come watch. But that's not what he does here. In fact, he does the opposite. Jesus does not go on a church growth campaign here. He, go, he goes on a church deepening campaign here. And that's important for us to know as a church. No, and because it's important for Jesus here, numbers aren't everything. Even though we are part of a growing church right now, that the success of a church is not numbers. Never has been, never will be in Jesus' eyes. The success of a church is bound up in faithful disciples. Truly, true disciples. And that's what Jesus wants for these people. And so that brings us to our first point this morning. And this is, and it's this, abiding is the mark of true discipleship. And so what we're going to do, we're just going to kind of tick through uh, all of these uh, verses and, and draw some application, see the truth uh, that's within them, draw some application and uh, hopefully worship together. So verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now, the first thing that really has to be addressed here uh, in this particular verse is the audience. So who is Jesus speaking to here? And it's kind of interesting uh, how John is uh, writing this. He says what? Or he says it to whom? I guess we should say the Jews who had believed him. So they're part of this crowd. They had believed him in some way. And so we have to deal with, okay, is Jesus talking to real genuine believers or is he talking to people who have maybe an outward expression of faith? Maybe they had an outward or or an inward kind of warm feeling towards Jesus because of all these miracles that he's been performing. Maybe, maybe they're a little bit fascinated with him, but they're not quite yet ready to give their everything to him. And bow the knee. That's who he's talking about. He's talking to people who were in the crowd of those who had believed. But these people that he's going to address, based on the context that, or the context that follows, are people who have that outward expression of faith. And that teaches us something about humanity here. By the way, before we move forward, we need to talk about how do we read this passage. So... Um, One of the ways that I like to read this passage, or I like to read the Bible, is this. I like to read texts and kind of find myself in the good people in the Bible, right? I like to be like David, or I like to be like uh, John John here, or John the Baptist. Like the guy who's like out there, on the brink, trying to really do it all for Jesus. That's kind of how I, whenever I read the text, I like to, to find myself in that person. 
Well, really, usually, the opposite is true. In fact, this text is not given to us so that we could look down at the Jews and say, what idiots. <laughs> How silly. I mean, why, he's been performing all these miracles. He's been making all these statements. Why wouldn't they believe in him? No, that's not the goal. The goal is to see ourselves in the Jews. Because God knows this, and that's why we have this text, is that we all have these very tendencies that we're going to encounter in this text deep within us. And so that's some application that we can can draw from this. Another interesting thing about this whole uh, process is that in John 2, 24 through 25, says this, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Okay. We also see that in John chapter 6. That same type of idea that Jesus actually already knows what is in man. So most certainly as he's addressing these people who have an outward expression of faith. He knows what is deep down inside. The same is true for us. The same is absolutely true for us. You may be here because your family is here. We're going to talk about family lineage here in just a second, later in this passage. You may be here because your family's here. You may believe, your family may be the substance of your faith. It may be. There may be people here who are in that position. You may be somebody who literally just has warm feelings about Jesus, or you're fascinated with the idea of Jesus, or maybe you, you can't find another social group to accept you and the church is really nice. And so you're here in this social group because you're just, they, we have good food on Wednesday nights and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, that may be you. And if it is know this, that we can all learn from this text and we can deeply deceive ourselves and move through life without thinking about the substance of our faith. Well, that is not okay with Jesus. If it were me, if I were Jesus here, I'd probably, like John 2 says, I would know what was in their hearts and I'd probably move on. <laughs> like, just, I'd, okay, I'm not casting pearls before these swine. You know, kind of an idea and I'm just going to move on. Well, that's not what he does. Jesus is gracious. These are harsh words and it's going to turn into a debate, actually, uh, between Jesus and the Jews. But these are harsh words, but this is the most gracious thing that Jesus could do for these people right here is to say, think about the substance of your faith. Don't just join the crowd. Think about the substance of your faith. Jesus goes on uh, in the second half of verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. The key word here, the key quality, the key characteristic that disciples have deep within them is the discipline the habit of abiding in the word of Christ. That's the characteristic. Just like the characteristic for those people who actually make it through West Point is a deep amount of personal passion and perseverance called grit. The same is true here. People who are genuinely, truly the disciples of Christ abide in his word. So we have to define abide. Abiding uh, can mean to remain, and it does mean to, con- to remain, to continue, or to dwell. This term is uh, very popular from John chapter 15, where we have the discourse of Jesus calling himself 
the true vine, and we are the branches, and we are to abide in him. And they also said that, Pastor, we are to abide in his love. So abiding also has this idea of life connection behind it. As we uh, understand how John use it, uses it uh, in chapter 15. So remaining, continuing, and dwelling in the word of Christ. The subject or the thing that we are to abide in, to dwell in, is what? My word. Okay? What is my word here? What are Jesus' words? This is referring to the whole commands of Jesus. All of his commands. And I think if we were to sum up all of the teachings of Jesus in just a few verses, we could look to Matthew 22, verse 37 through 40, which says this, and this is, you know this. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole, the whole law and the prophets. And the prophets. And so that's what it means. Abide, remain in the whole teachings of Jesus. And by doing so, you are proving your discipleship. All of these words are important in the text. And every word in this Bible right here, you should know this, is intentional. It is absolutely intentional. But look at this. If you abide in my word... What? You will become my disciples? No. You are. You are my disciples. Abiding in the word of God is not some hoop that you have to jump through in order to gain favor with God. No. God gives us favor not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of his free love and mercy for us. But whenever someone experiences God's free grace and his true mercy, and they know their full need of their sinfulness, and they know the, the, the fullness of the holy, holiness of God, they understand those things and they encounter the mercy of God, they can do nothing else except abide and dwell and continue and remain in the teachings of our Lord. That's how this works. This is not something that you do to gain God's favor. This is what you do when you have God's favor. Two completely different things. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples. And this most certainly begs a few questions from us or for us. Are you abiding in God's word? Um we're a church family. We know one another. We see each other on Wednesdays and Sundays, hopefully. Sometimes Sunday nights we'll see you again. Hope, you know, sometimes. But we don't live with you week to week. And so we don't, we, we don't know who the real you always is. Okay? And, and, as you, and as you distance yourself from the church and only... Um, and, and as we only see each other just a couple of times a week, it's hard to know. And you know this. 
that you, by showing up and being in front of people in a church-type setting, you can have this general association that you are being faithful and that you are a believer and that you are abiding in God's Word. But I don't think that Jesus saying that those abiding in my Word, I don't think He's regulating that just to a Wednesday night, a Sunday morning, and a Sunday night. He's talking about in your whole life. Are you abiding in the Word of God? That's one of the questions that we have to ask. Are you? Because by doing so, you're proving your discipleship. You're proving your discipleship. There are, there are many of us in here, and I do say many of us, because I'm a preacher this morning, but a preacher is just somebody who, who he's just God's servant, who has to live in this world um, to, and fight the same battle, sometimes more battles. Um, and so I say us here. There are some of us who struggle who are believers, genuine, true believers, but we struggle to abide in God's word consistently. I think that as you read this text, that we can't just gloss over this and put a check mark by it because we are true disciples. Our faith is in Christ and not be challenged to abide in Christ more. I use this illustration. Um, my wife and I, uh, we've got some flowers at our house, Right? These flowers are kind of funny. They're, they're kind of a source of hilarity for us because we've got some flowers at our house. And whenever we first got these flowers, I was on top of water. It's my responsibility to water the flowers, by the way. Um, I think it's a good reminder. There's a lot of truth in watering flowers. I mean, it's just nurturing something. It's, it's, there's just something there. Um, but whenever we first got these things, I was on top of it. And these things were flourishing, right? They're like growing all over the house. They look beautiful. We've got it on our porch. We've got it in our flower box in front of the window. Then life gets busy, right? And then before long, I'm just blasting by these flowers uh, and not even thinking about them. Not thinking about them at all until what? Until, whoa, I look at them and they're dry on the vine. The, the, the leaves are withered. The flowers are closed. <laughs> like it's, it's, It looks like a sad little situation for these flowers because they have been neglected. Well, that's really true of our own abiding as well. Whenever we are consistently dedicating time, disciplining ourselves to spend time in God's word, it will lead to your flourishing. You're connecting to the life source. This is what is good for you. This is what is good for your family. Do that. Abide in God's word more. With your family, abide in God's word more. It will lead to your flourishing. If you do not, and you'll be able to see this in the home before we'll be able to see this in the church, you'll be drawn the vine. Your responses to your spouse will get short. Your leadership of your family will grow weak. You'll look to external things for various types of pleasures. You'll try to find new truth in the world. If you don't, abide consistently. Abide. It's meant for your flourishing. But this also leads us to uh, certain things, certain results. And in verse 32, if you'll turn your attention there, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So abiding has something that follows it. It has a result, and it is the knowledge of truth. Truth deals and, and, and deals with the things that are most ultimate. 
Uh, in fact, truth defined is this, that which is in accordance with fact or reality. Now, Jesus is saying that by your abiding, you will come to know truth. You will come to know what is true about the world. You will come to know that which is ultimate reality whenever you are abiding in my word. You will know the truth. And then truth, truth in the book of John is very closely associated with Jesus, the Son of God, and the revelation of Jesus. We see that in John chapter 1. We see that all throughout, uh, we see that all throughout uh, the book of John, which is really part of what ticked the Jews off. Um, he is claiming ultimate truth is actually about him. Kind of makes him mad. But we're dealing with what is most ultimate here. Whether you acknowledge it or not, the most ultimate thing in the world is not you, your circumstances, your trials. What is ultimate in the world is Christ. He is what He is the ultimate reality. Is that God is a holy God, we are sinners, and because He Christ has sacrificed Himself on the cross for our sins, we can have hope. We can have the forgiveness of sins by the washing of the blood. That is ultimate reality. And by abiding in the word, you will come to know that truth. But truth doesn't just stay here, right? Truth is not just a mental ascension. It's not. There's the scriptures. We do have to know the scriptures, but we have to believe them, right? And whenever truth is grasped and whenever truth is truly believed, it doesn't just stay here. It sets us free. It sets us free. And that's what uh, John says here. And the truth will set you free. So point number one, just to reiterate, the mark of true discipleship is abiding. It's abiding. Point number two here, as we move forward throughout this text, um, is this, slaves to sin, freed by the Son. Now, Jesus, again, he's, he's... Drawing a crowd and he's honing in on certain individuals that, according to John 2, he already knows are not true, genuine believers. Well, in proper fashion, there's a debate that ensues, right? We don't like to be called out for our wrong, do we? No, we don't. I don't. In the home, whenever I wrong my wife, which happens a lot, um, I don't like it when I get called out. And she doesn't like it when I call her out either. But why is that? It's because we are prideful. We think that we are fine. Um, We think that we are right. This is what the Jews do here. Um, They they get a little testy with Jesus. And they respond. They answer him, verse 33, We're the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Free. Now, that's an interesting statement, isn't it? Because we know at the onset um, of this very statement that they have some sort of selective amnesia, right? Selective amnesia. Um, this is the thing that happens whenever your wife tells you to take out the trash and then you come back in the house at, at, at the end of the day and you didn't take the trash out and you say, oh, I, I didn't remember you saying that kind of a thing. This is what the Jews are doing here. They're justifying themselves in a way that forgets Their own history. How could the Jews of all people say that they have never been enslaved 
to anyone. By the way, being set free from something, which is what the truth does, entails, fundamentally entails, some sort of bondage. So they say, what in the world? What are you talking about? We've never been slaves to anyone. They've forgotten that they've been enslaved to the Egyptians, to the Assyrians, to the Babylonians. They've been enslaved in Greece by the Syrians, and they were currently under Roman rule. They weren't thriving as a theocracy in any stretch of the imagination here. They were under Roman rule, paying Roman taxes. I mean, they were, in a lot of ways, still in bondage. They have selective amnesia, and that's their defense. Well, Jesus answers them, and we're going to see this happen. They're going to respond. Jesus is going to respond. This is the debate that Jesus is going to finish um, here. So Jesus responds with this, verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free Indeed. And we'll go ahead and finish this out here through, through 38. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. The most popular verse um, in this little passage, or, or this little uh, section that I just uh, read is... Um, this, so if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. A lot of times we see that misappropriated. Um, but here is pertaining to freedom from sin. Again, verse 34 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices, practices sin is a slave to sin. Now this idea of practicing sin um, does entail or connotate a continual, habitual lifestyle of sin, following in sin, following in sin. Now we are all, even for us believers, we are still sinners. And we will be until Christ returns and redeems us. We'll talk about that here in just a second. We will all still have times where we lash out at our brothers and sisters, where we lash out at our spouses, when we get anxious over silly, non-ultimate things. We, we, will, we will do that even as believers. But John here, or Jesus here, is saying everyone who practices sin, meaning a continual, habitual lifestyle of sin, is a slave to sin is a slave to sin. There may be some of us in here today who continually uh, wallow in the same type of sin day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. I mean, that could be any number of different things from gossip to slander to lust to disobeying parents, which we talk a lot about in the youth group, to um, any number of different things. It, it Lying, any number of different things. Some of us may be wallowing in the same sins for year after year after year. And in a sense, after you have this sin that you kind of wallow in for a while, you kind of feel like you're in control of that sin, that you can kind of practice it without anyone knowing, okay, or without the truth ever coming back around in the next year or so, so you'll just follow it, um, without the truth ever being known about that, 
And you kind of feel like you can control it. You can control the circumstances, control the situation to protect yourself from truth ever being known about your sin, but still you practice it. Jesus says you're a slave to it. You don't control it. It actually controls you. That sin habit that you can't break, you're not in control of it. It controls you. You are a slave to sin if you are not found in Christ. And if you have a practice of sin, repent of that. Even this morning, repent of that and know the goodness of God. Well, Jesus continues here uh, with with an illustration himself. And he says this in verse uh, 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Okay, what is Jesus talking about here? It's kind of a tricky little uh, illustration. Well, he, he's kind of painting the picture of a house in the ancient Near East where there's slaves. And he's kind of painting the picture of one slave saying to another slave, Hey man, you've worked hard going home. You're free. Well, that's not how it works, is it? A slave has no authority over another slave to tell him that he is free from anything. But if the son of the house says, you are free, you are free indeed. That's the picture that Jesus is painting here. You may have tried any number of different personal strength and perseverance methods to overcome sin in your life, in and of yourself. But at the end of the day, you're a slave to it. And a slave can't set a slave free. You know, Jesus can Jesus is the one who can set you free from any sin habits, from sin itself. And he will indeed, if you trust and abide in him. Now, there are three ways that, um, that we are set free. As believers, we, we are set free uh, from sin in three, in three different ways. Uh, first of all, Jesus frees us from the penalty of sin, right? Sin has a penalty, God is a holy God. He is a just judge. He is good. He is true. He is ultimate. And he will judge sin. For those of us who are in Christ, our sin has been judged in Christ. Therefore, we are freed from the penalty of sin. Jesus also frees us from the power of sin. The ability to overcome sin cannot come from within yourself. It can come from the Son. The Son can work in your life as you abide in Him as ultimate reality, as ultimate truth to set you free from the power of sin that you struggle with day in, day out. And then one day, Jesus will free us from the presence of sin, from the very presence of sin. The Son will set you free indeed. Verse 37, I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, Jesus says. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen from my father and you do what you've heard from your father. Basically, Jesus isn't buying their excuse. Okay? He's not patting them on the back and saying, ah, one day you'll understand. No, he's addressing them. Listen, I'm not buying it. Just because you are connected to Abraham from a physical lineage standpoint doesn't mean anything about your spiritual state. And so Jesus hones in there. In verse 38, he, he even goes on to explain that his witness 
is actually more reliable than their witness. Look at that. He says this, I speak of what I have seen, okay, what I have seen with my eyes, with my father, and you, and you do what you have heard from your father. What's the most reliable type of witness? Eyewitness. And then whenever you have multiple witnesses, multiple eyewitnesses, you've got a strong case. Jesus is saying here, listen guys, my witness is true. I've seen this with my father. You have heard of Abraham. And you have heard these different types of things. But it doesn't amount to spiritual freedom. Point number three here. And we'll finish uh, verse 39 through 47. Is this. Spiritual lineage trumps physical lineage. Spiritual lineage trumps physical lineage. Again, they answered Jesus right here in verse 39. They answered him. Abraham is our father. So they appeal to it again. It's kind of funny uh, considering the fact that in verse 37, Jesus just said, I know Abraham is your father. He, they appeal again. It's just showing you that they're not getting it, right? They do not have the spiritual eyes to discern that they, that they have a great need, that they're enslaved to sin, that they don't abide in the full truth of Christ. They don't get it. Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham or the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. So Jesus here is... Um, calling them out. And I think it's really important uh, to discuss just briefly, what are the works of Abraham? What are the works of Abraham? Well, I think if you just zip right over to verse 56 of chapter eight, um, Jesus says this. So verse 56 of chapter eight, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. He saw it and was glad. Abraham had a messianic hope. This is demonstrated all throughout Abraham's life. Not that he was perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but he did have, um, he did have a faith, a hope in a messianic salvation. Hope in the covenant of grace with God. He had that hope and he looked forward to that day when Jesus would come. He saw it and he was glad. He saw it and he was glad. Are these Jews glad right now? Absolutely not. So the works of Abraham and the, the arguments of the Jews are not meshing. Okay, They're just absolutely not meshing. It is interesting, too, that here Jesus does appeal to works. Right? Uh, that is another evidence that you are a believer. You're, you will have works that follow in the line of Abraham. You will look forward to the day of Christ. You will. You absolutely will. You will have a messianic hope. You will not live perfectly, but you will have that hope. And you will bear fruit, which is later discussed in depth in John chapter uh, 15. So, um, But now, verse 40, you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. And then Jesus is going to, um, well, actually, we need to look at this really quickly. Um, Luke chapter 3, verse 8, is very helpful 
and important here. It says this, bearing fruit with keeping repentance, in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. He knows the hearts of humans. Again, Paul in Romans 9, uh, 6 and 7 says this, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Just bringing it all together that this, this, these works of Abraham fundamentally entail finding one's hope in the person who was revealed in Christ. And then Jesus is going to, he's not going to let them off the hook um, without a father. They're going to have a father here at the end of this conversation, at the end of this debate. And Jesus is going to um, share with them who, who their actual father is. They missed it. Uh, physically, they descended from uh, Abraham. But Jesus isn't concerned with physical arguments. He's concerned with what is spiritual here. And so he's going to give them and tell them and reveal to them their spiritual father in the verses that follow. So starting in verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I come for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Is because you cannot hear to bear or you cannot bear to hear my word. You're of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not from God. Again, Jesus is not at all concerned with their physical lineage. Jesus is 100% concerned with their spiritual lineage. And he explains to these people, the reason you don't abide in my word, the reason you don't find truth in me is because you're not of God. You're actually, you're, you're from You're a descendant of he who is the father of all lies. So how could you hear and bear to hear truth? How could you? And just kind of as we close, um, recognize this. There's no neutrality here, right? Jesus Jesus didn't say, well, you're on the right path, okay? He doesn't just say, "Uh, you're on the right path, just keep coming. Just keep the crowds growing. Keep them coming, keep them coming. He's concerned, He's gracious in that. And this sparks friction, but it sparks truth. Now, these people know that they are actually, well, they don't know it yet because this debate is going to continue, but this is where we're going to end. So they don't get it yet, but Jesus wants them to know where they lie. We We would be remiss as a church to be satisfied with crowd gathering. That is not okay. That is absolutely not okay for a church of Christ to do. Absolutely not. We must be fundamentally concerned with the depth, the substance 
of one's faith, the, the, the abiding ability of persons to remain, to dwell, and continue in Christ. As a church, we should do that. And I don't mean us as a staff. We should do that. We should do that. We will do that. We, are continue, we will continue to value that. But you as well. Husbands to your wives. Wives to your husbands. Care that there's deep substance to one another's faith. Friend to friend. Laborer. Worker. Wherever you are in the world. Care. Just as Jesus did. People need to know truth. They need to know where they stand in regards to their spiritual lineage. And it is those who continually abide in the word of Christ. It is those who continually bear the fruit of Christ. Who are truly my disciples. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for... um, the time that we're able to spend in your word today. God, we pray that even as we sing uh, this last song and as we consider these truths, um, as we leave this place and as we live throughout this week, that you would help us to know to apply it appropriately, to be honest with ourselves, to uncover uh, any lies that the devil has um, deeply seated within our hearts, that we would be able to see you for who you are as the one who frees us from all of our sin, including the penalty of sin. God, we thank you for where you're going in this text. God, we thank you for where John is going in his book. God, we thank you for Christ and how he died to save sinners like us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.